The scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 17. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Welcome again to the first Sunday in Advent. And as I wrote this throughout the week, I I imagine a good chunk of the room maybe grew up with Advent as a thing, like you know the word Advent, you've participated in some capacity, um, and you you have a certain certain number of things in your mind of what it means and what it is and what you do, and then I imagine there's a good chunk in the room who maybe, maybe you'd heard of it, but it definitely just wasn't a part of your life. I, I have both in mind in this sermon, and we have both in mind for the next several weeks. For the next four weeks, Pastor Mike and I are going to preach through four different aspects of the worthiness of God in relation to the first and second coming of Jesus. And so Matt made us the sweet graphic, Our God is Worthy is the banner under which these next four sermons will fall. This week I'm going to preach on the glorious reality that Jesus' first coming was worthy of centuries of preparation. There were centuries of preparation that God called his people, gifted his people with and called them to. And then also worthy of one who would proclaim his arrival. That That's the passage here, and, and I love this. I don't know if you've ever read this passage in the way I want to help you see it today, but it's pretty awesome. Before getting there, though, because I have a, a wider group of people, maybe some that grew up with Advent but have just sort of become numb to it and you just have gone through the motions. I want to kind of waken you up. By I hope the Spirit wakes you up out of the motions. And for those of you who don't have any motions, Advent motions yet, I want you to get some. I want you to get some Advent motions this week. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a little bit about that. So what isn't Advent? What is it? Why might you take part in it? And what might taking part in it? Look like I want to start with that before we get to this passage. So let's pray. Uh, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, would you give us the gift of treasuring Jesus Christ, all that He is, and all that He accomplished, and all that He is still doing, and all that He has yet to do? Would you give us the gift? If you don't 
give us this. We won't have this. We need this because this is true. (laughs) Would you give us the gift of treasuring Jesus, the incarnate one, in such a way that celebrating his coming and return would be our great joy? Would you please cause us to know Christ, to know who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do in such a way that he stands out in our heart, in our mind, in our affections, and our desires, such that this is a time of great joy. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start by making sure we're all on the same page. Wherever you've come from on your Advent journey, uh, I want to get us all on the same page together this morning. So first, what isn't it? If you were here, many of you were here, but if you were here at our Ebenezer service, you might remember me saying, and this is maybe more, this at the Ebenezer service was maybe more obvious than Advent is, but Thanksgiving Day is not required. Celebrating Thanksgiving Day is not required by God for Christians. I said that at the Ebenezer service. I said, as God's people, we're called by God to give thanks in all circumstances. And because of that, we might choose to use Thanksgiving Day as a means to that end, but it's only one possible and not necessary way to do so. Well, again, Advent is like that. We've got to settle on that first. There's no, there is a way in which celebrating Advent can be a useful tool for God's people for something God has called us to and does require of us, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. But this next, this form for sure But Advent itself is not something directly commanded by God. In fact, I know this well, and maybe some of you do too. It is possible, and and unfortunately in the church, maybe even probable, to go through Advent motions in ways that do not actually honor God. You can do all the things. You you can go to all the services and take part in all the the stuff and still have a heart very far from God. I did that for at least 18 years of my life. And so there's nothing in Advent itself that is magical. You you can go through it and not honor God at all. On the other hand, you can sort of bypass it all together and and live a life that really is pleasing to God as as in maybe a different form. You long for Christ to come back and when life is easy and when life is hard. But here, here's the simple point I'm trying to make. If Advent is going to be a part of our lives and a part of our church, which we hope it will be, uh, we must do so with a clear understanding of what it is and isn't. And it isn't something that's necessary for us. So, so that's what it isn't. What is it? Well, simply, as I read at the very beginning in, in the candle lighting deal, uh, Advent means coming. It means coming. And in the church, it refers, of course, to the coming of Jesus. Most specifically, it refers to his first coming. You can read all about that, and and you will if you take part in Advent at Grace Church. You can read all about that in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke at the beginning. Grace, hear this. The Son of God had eternally existed along with the Father and the Spirit. The Son of God has eternally existed along with the Father and the Spirit. But in the fullness of time, according to the will of the Father, the Son was conceived in a virgin by the Holy Spirit and took on flesh, that he might become truly God and truly man. 
That's true. (laughs) Jesus came, and he came for those reasons. But Advent also points us to the second coming of Jesus. He came for the first time as a bruised reed and a sacrificial lamb, the one promised by God to rescue mankind from our sin, but he will come again in power as the conquering king, promised by God to set all things right. And, And that's the subject of my sermon next week. For centuries, the church has marked off four weeks, again, read this earlier, prior to Christmas is a time to celebrate Jesus' first coming and anticipate his second. That's the time we call Advent. So that's what it isn't and what it is. So the question is, if if that's what it isn't, it's not required by God, and what it is historically, why, why do we why do we participate in this? Why are we asking you to do that? And why are we going to do that as a, a church? I want to give you three reasons. I think these are good reasons. If you're not convinced now that Advent is a worthwhile use of your time, I hope these three help you. And the first one, and actually part of the reason we read the uh, Apostles' Creed and some of the songs we're singing, the first one is that it connects us with the larger historical church. In heaven, all true believers of all time will be gathered together to celebrate the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. When we read the eternal words of God, when we read our Bibles, when we sing old songs, songs of old hymns that the church has sung across continents and generations, when we recite ancient creeds, that's why part of why we read the, the Nicene Creed, when we participate in century long, centuries-long practices or centuries-old practices like Advent, we get a taste of heaven. And we get a humbling sense of our significant but small place in God's great plan. It's all too easy to fall into the cultural trap of believing that Christianity is all about me and Jesus alone now. There is that to some degree, but that's just a tiny piece of it. Celebrating Advent is one way to remind us of our connection to the larger church, all believers around the world today. We're not the only ones doing this all around the world, in all kinds of languages, and among all kinds of people groups, this is taking place. So it's a reminder of our connection to the larger and the historical. Believers have been doing this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It reminds us of of our connection to the larger and historical church. That's the first reason. The second, I've mentioned this, it's a tool for godliness. Rightly used, rightly engaged in, Advent is a tool for godliness in pursuit of, and it is an expression of godliness, it is good and right to strive for a continual sense of gladness at the coming of Jesus and at the return of Jesus. In other words, to follow Jesus, to be a a mature believer in Christ is to be grateful for his first coming and to long for his second coming. That is an aspect of godliness that we need to be cultivating. As I mentioned earlier, Advent is one of the best outlets to express and develop, or to develop and then express that kind of heart in ourselves and in others. It's a really useful tool. It's not required, but it's a really useful tool. Number three, and this is going to be the the banner once again that goes through all we do over the next four weeks, because the Godhead is worth it. Because the Godhead is worth it. And I hope to begin to help you to understand that. Kids, I sat through this. I know where many of you are. I sat through this 
for many years where it just sort of flew over my head and I was thinking of cookies and presents and, and just about everything but God. <laughs> but I promise you, kids, if, if God is kind to you to give you ears to hear and eyes to see, and that's not unique to kids, all of us adults need this too, but he is worth it. And I hope to help convince you of that even more today. Ultimately, then, we've chosen to participate in Advent because there is almost no better way to spend a month. (laughs) There's almost no better theme to gather together around for a month in considering and celebrating the comings of Jesus. As Pastor Mike will help us to see in a few weeks, each person of the Godhead participated in the incarnation and will participate in the return of Jesus in different and unique ways. Listen, Grace. In order to rescue a wayward people from himself, he is worthy. That God loved us enough that he came to forgive our trespasses, he is worthy. That he was wise enough to determine a way to be just and justifier even before the foundation of the earth was laid, he is worthy. That he was powerful enough to cancel sin and defeat death and achieve eternal life for all who would receive him in faith, he is worthy. That he will come again and that he will come again in such a display of power and might that every knee on earth will bow before him and confess him as Lord, he is worthy. And when he returns, he will fix all that is broken and make all things new. He is worthy. At its best, Advent is a month-long celebration of the worthiness of God to be praised above all. So if we're to celebrate Advent, it ought to be for reasons like these. That it connects us with the universal church, it is a tool for godliness, and our God is worthy of it. All right, so what might our participation look like? This is the last question and sort of the intro. What might it look like? Now, again, there's not one thing that it can look like, but the incarnation of Jesus means that our preparation for, in celebration of, hear this, this is a really important aspect of the Christian life in one way that is distinct from many other world religions. The incarnation of Jesus means that our celebration of the incarnation of Jesus needs to be incarnate. Does that make sense? You with me? It has to work itself out in the visible world. The the way that we respond to the incarnation of Jesus is not just an internal thing. It starts there. It starts with a heart that is glad in Christ, but it doesn't ever end there. It can't end there. It, It has to be incarnate. Our celebrations, our responses have to work themselves out into the visible world as well. And so we encourage you, all of you, to spend some time prayerfully and creatively imagining what you might do. Think think about it. Think about what this is. And we're going to give you lots to think about over the coming weeks. Think about what, what Advent is, what it represents, what it's reminding us of and pointing us to, and get creative. Figure out some way that is unique to you, to, to you as a person or to you as a family, Figure out some ways that you can carry on or revive old traditions. Maybe you did it growing up, but it was empty, and and you can add meaning to it. 
or, or again, maybe something new altogether with, or with your DG. Try to find ways that Christians in your home, like all of them, if you're, if you're a parent with young kids or an empty nester or you live by yourself, try to find a way in which everyone in your home, no matter how old or, or wise or well-versed in the Bible they are, try to find a way that everyone in your home could use their gifts in a specific way to make Advent as special and as honoring to God as possible. Kids, help your parents. You know, they're not that great at this. You guys are better than us in some ways. Help your parents. Parents, help your kids. In addition to what you might do on your own or within your family or even within your DG, I'm going to give you a couple of things we're going to be doing, and we invite you to come on in as a church. And the first is the sermon series. For each Sunday in Advent, in light of my last point, that God is worthy, Pastor Mike and I will preach under the banner of our God is worthy. Today, I'm going to share a few thoughts with you on the fact that Jesus' first coming was worthy of his people preparing for, and then I'm going to give you a few implications for us today. Next week, I'm going to point us forward to his second coming and why that's significant and shows his worthiness. And then the next two Sundays, the 12th and the 19th of December, Pastor Mike is going to preach on the worthiness of each person of the Trinity, each person of the Godhead in the incarnation. So the first thing is participate in the worship service actively, fully. Come and be prepared and know what's coming next and pray for Pastor Mike and I and the worship team and pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ to be filled up with the full measure of grace and mercy and glory that God has for us in Christ. Second, uh, we, we have a handful of events. We're going to have this, the children's Christmas program. It was really neat to see all the kids in the back room beginning to work on this. And they're going to sing and they're going to tell us the story of Jesus. Even if you don't have a kid in it, plan to come to it. Come and hear again this story. But But here's the thing. Like you can just go and show up and that's fine. I hope at least you do that. But there's a way that you can you can pivot from maybe what you've done in the past to what you might do this year, which is to say, begin today praying for these kids. Ask, ask David Oman if you can have a list of the kids in the program and pray for every one of them individually. But pray, pray for each kid specifically, I mean, that God would open the eyes of their heart, that through this they would hear the message and they wouldn't just be memorizing lines, but they would know they are articulating the words of eternal life and pray for each person that each one of them might invite and who you might invite and pray that for the first time in maybe a long time, you'll hear the Christmas story through them as it's meant to be heard. So there's there's a little bit more to it than maybe just possibly showing up. There's a way to lean into it that I think would honor God and strengthen your faith that's could be awesome. Uh, second, we're gonna our family's gonna host a Nativity Walk again. We'd love for all of you to come and if you don't know what that is, we'll tell you more about that. We're gonna go caroling and uh, to senior homes, to some older people, maybe in our church, but certainly in different senior homes, if singing is your thing, or even if it isn't, if Jesus is your thing and and you can sing quiet enough not to hurt anyone's ears, come with us. And <laughs> that's always my goal. Um, but we're going to go caroling. We're going to do a meal delivery on Christmas Eve day, right? Christmas Eve day. Uh, so if you want to help us take meals to people that 
maybe don't have them or don't have somebody to eat them with, then we're going to do that. And then, of course, the Christmas Eve service as well. And there's probably a few more sprinkled in there that I'm forgetting, but those are some of the bigger ones. And then lastly, we, we have a gift for you guys again. If you haven't gotten the hint at Grace Church, we want you to read. Not, not just for its own sake, but because we are called to be transformed increasingly into the image of Christ. And we're told the way that that happens is through the renewing of our mind. It's a gift of God, but it happens through the renewing of our mind. And so on the back, there's a hundred of them. So please take one. If you know somebody that might, uh, uh, might want one of these, take one for them too. They're, they're not a hundred family units at Grace right now. So please take one for yourself and one to give away. They're really good. They're really simple. They're all like a page and a half. They're not long at all. Uh, each day is a short, simple, exceptionally Christ-centered truth relating to Advent. It would be great for you to use it in as a part of your quiet time or as your family worship or maybe work it into your DG somehow. Um, but but to really help you appreciate how simple and sweet it is, I'm going to close the sermon by reading the first day for you. Celebrating Advent is not required for Christians. It is a practice of the church intended to help celebrate Jesus' first coming and anticipate his second. If we are to participate in it, it ought to be to help us connect to the larger church, the universal church, to express and grow in godliness And it ought to flow from our understanding that God is worthy. And we'd like to encourage you to lean into it yourself and in the different ways we're going to celebrate it together. And as one means to those ends, as I I mentioned the first event, we're going to preach on the relationship between Advent and the worthiness of God to receive all blessing and honor and praise. Specifically this morning, I'm going to pivot a little bit. This isn't two sermons. There's an important connection between what I just said and what I'm about to say. We're going to pivot just a little bit. And specifically this morning, I intend to spend the rest of this sermon helping you to consider the worthiness of God. The only way any of this makes sense is if God is as worthy as I've said he is, and I want to help get underneath that. I want to help you to see. Pastor Mike and I want to help you to see that God is, in fact, worthy of all of this and more. And so, again, specifically, I'm going to preach on the worthiness of God that's revealed in the first coming of Jesus. This this is, I, I love this part. <laughs> this is This is a neat... Neat passage and a neat encouragement to us. But I want you to consider something for just a second. What kinds of things do you most prepare for? Or what kinds of things do you prepare for the most? So stop and think. What's the last thing you really, really prepared for? Uh, try to draw something to mind. Kids, you too. Is, was it a test at school maybe? Or a job interview? A project at work? Family vacation? As a kid, I, the thing I most remember being prepared for in my home was my dad's hunting trips. He, it was just really cute how he'd lay out all of his boots and clothes, and, and then one pair would be there one day, and then, oh, no, that's not the right one. And then a different pair would be there the next day as he just played out his hunting trip in his mind. And he never actually or explicitly said it, but it was clear that he really enjoyed the trip, and preparing for it was a big part of the actual enjoyment. Along those lines, I spent time this week trying to answer that question myself. What 
What is the single thing in my life that I prepared for the most? And I, I don't, I don't actually know the answer to that. I, I tried to figure it out. I don't know what it is, but I imagine it's, it's got to be our wedding or the birth or adoption of our, our children. It's got to be one of those. But even if it's ministry or something else, here's the thing that did become obvious to me. It probably should have been coming into the week, but it wasn't. Here's what became obvious. Every one of the candidates, so as I was drawing the big things in my life that I prepared for, every one of the candidates had something in common. They were the most important things in my life. They were the things I, I care most, most about. I've never spent months preparing to brush my teeth. I've never spent months preparing to stain a piece of wood. I've never spent months getting ready to go to the gas station to get gas. Here's the principle. It seems obvious to me now, in a way it didn't before this week, that preparation is directly tied to value. We prepare most for the things we value the most. And so it should not be surprising then that God has called his people to prepare for the coming of Jesus centuries before he before he came. Because Jesus is supremely valuable, his coming was worthy of preparing for like few other things in the whole history of mankind. There are two things in particular that I want to draw your attention to this morning. My goal first is to say, what did God do to help his people prepare for Jesus coming the first time? So I want us to get our minds in in God's people. We just got through Genesis, where God first made his covenant promises to his covenant people and promised that he would redeem them and rescue them and save them and bless them. I want us to get our minds first in their minds. So God gave his people two things in particular to prepare for the coming of Jesus. One were centuries of promises. We're going to look at a couple of those. And then two from our text up here is John the Baptist. Both of those things show the worthiness of God. Come with me on this. Just like there are a number of New Testament promises that we'll look at next week concerning the return of Jesus, there are dozens of Old Testament promises that promised his coming. So put yourself in the mindset of the people for whom he had not yet come and consider these promises. The main reason we need all of this is to help us to see the unique worthiness of God that is revealed in his unique promises and works. The fact that God chose to tell his people so many times, in so many ways, through so many different means, over so many different years, that he would send a rescuer was meant to help them prepare for his coming, to feel their need for it, and to long for it because he was worthy of their trust and allegiance. Now, I need you to listen to this in a certain way. How many of you guys recently were at a, a like a, a meal or some kind of celebration, Thanksgiving Day or something, where there's just a lot of noise? <laughs> there's just a lot of sound going on, and to hear somebody say something that you weren't directly listening to and make sense of it, it just really would have had to have risen above a lot of noise. How many, if not recently, at some point, all of you have, it's like church every Sunday morning before, before we start. It's just like, oh my goodness, there is a lot of noise going on here. And so, so we, that's why I have a microphone on to amplify over and above all of you to draw you, you know, herd you cats into your, that kind of deal. But okay, so here's the thing. Why am I saying that? 
your life has some times that are good and easy and, and things that are fun and, and you're just glad for it. And how, how sweet is this? And your life has times that are low and hard. And generally we long for Jesus to return more in the, in the harder times. And we, we tend to sort of forget about it in, in the, in the better times. But what we need is something to cut through and rise above all of that, that the noise of the circumstances of our life to show us the worthiness of Jesus. And one of those things are these centuries-long promises that he would come. Genesis 3, we, that should be familiar with most of us. It's the very first promise we find. Immediately after the fall in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you should go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here's where it gets good. I will put enmity between you and the woman, directly talking about Eve and the serpent, the serpent's offspring and her offspring. I will put enmity between you and and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And here's the first promise that Jesus would come, made to just two people. He shall bruise your head, this offspring of the woman, and you shall bruise his heel. It's a simple, subtle reminder that a son of Eve one day would crush the head of the serpent who helped usher in sin and death to mankind. This was a promise that Jesus would come. Of course, they couldn't have understood that then, but it was meant where God said, if you eat of this, you will surely die. They ate, they knew they would die. This was in the context of God cursing them, but it was God promising to provide through the offspring of the woman hope. It was meant to help shape the way they looked forward and looked at their current circumstances. This was the promise that Jesus would come, and it was meant to send a surge of hope and longing into Adam and Eve, rightly read, into us as well. The second one is Genesis 12. Just a, a little bit later, again, we, we, I hope this is familiar to many of you. There's a similarly subtle promise that Jesus would come in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. And speaking his covenant with Abraham, God promised, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in in you, that is in your offspring, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. There, There were, of course, partial fulfillments of the promise of this promise throughout the Old Testament, but the fullness of the blessing for Abraham and all the families of the earth was only to be found in Jesus. This was a promise that Jesus would come, that not just any offspring of Abraham, but a particular, through a particular offspring of Abraham, all the nations on earth would be blessed. God's people were to long for and prepare, and they did when, when they thought it was mainly a horizontal thing. Just, we'd be powerful on earth and have lots of money and stuff. Even when they thought it was just a horizontal thing, or mainly a horizontal thing, they prepared well. But he gave it to them that they would prepare well for something even greater still, even though they couldn't have fully known it, to prepare for the coming of Jesus. Number three. I say there's five. This is number three. In Isaiah seven fourteen, it was promised to King Ahaz, and through him all of Israel, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is familiar, right? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall and, and, and shall call his name Emmanuel. What was subtle is not anymore. It becomes explicit. Emmanuel means 
God with us. God gave this prophecy promise to his people once again because Emmanuel's coming was great news and meant to be prepared for, to get ready for. What's more, the awesome nature of his coming was indicated by the supernatural way in which he would come, through a virgin. The promised one would be no ordinary man. He would not come through ordinary means. He would accomplish no ordinary things, which meant that God's people were meant to prepare in no ordinary way. (laughs) That's awesome. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us, we saw this, a son is born, or, or a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This might be the most familiar of all the promises that Jesus would come. Around Christmas time, we find it all over the place, on cards and in songs and even on billboards as you drive down the highway. Among other things, this particular promise was meant to heighten and give form to what was to come. Now, let me tell you, let me ask you this. If, if I were to say to you, I want to, I want to take you guys out to dinner. That's kind of cool, right? Yeah, it's, that's intriguing. But there's a world of difference, though, between you get one item off the dollar menu at McDonald's <laughs> and I'm going to take you someplace really nice, like, like Fogo. All right. So, so, Within that, though, maybe you don't exactly know what Fogo de, de Chao is. And so that sounds kind of cool, but I don't really even know what you're talking about. I mean, it sounds better than a dollar menu item, maybe, but but I don't even really know what it is. And so to get promises that that God would send someone, that's pretty neat. But what if that someone was only to come and help out three people? That's kind of cool for those three people. But Or what if he helped them out by by simply wiping their slate clean again? I mean, they could still fall back into sin, but at least for a time, they have a clean slate and and the ability to go for it with all that they have. Well, it's still sort of good news, but not that good, right? And so, again, if I if I told you that at Fogo, you you can man, you can get the top sirloin, you can get the fillet, the beef ancho, it's their, their special garlic encrusted ribeye, you can get the stuff wrapped in bacon. I mean, all right, this is a different animal. Now we're now we're now we're talking. It would only serve to heighten your eagerness. Well, God doesn't just give us generic or, or simple explanations of the one who was to come. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, savior of the world. And so again, it is with the promises of God. He would be a wonderful king. He would provide and protect and bring peace to the world. How's that for someone worth preparing for. Last one, Micah 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Finally, this passage, God promised to send one from this little town, Bethlehem, from too small in some ways to be considered even a part of the tribe of Judah was, but all of this was intended to help the Israelites long for the promised Savior and to know him when he came. In the Gospel of John, I read this in my quiet time this week, we're told that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. You remember that? John chapter 13, he washed his disciples' feet, and after having done so, he said, ah, I got bad news, though. One of you is going to betray me. That, that's no good, right? 
He says, but the scripture will be revealed or be fulfilled. He who ate my bread and has lifted his heel against me. So he, he said there would be someone who would betray him and even gave an indication of who that would be. But more importantly, listen to this. Jesus revealed why he revealed that this would be the case. I'm telling you this now, he said to his followers, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. The Advent promises, dozens of them, spread out over centuries, are like that. They were told in advance that God's people would long for the time of his coming. And when it did come, God's people would believe that Jesus was the one who was promised. All right, that's the first way God gave his people to prepare. Here's the second. The second main way in our text for this morning. The second main way God helped his people prepare for the coming of the promised Messiah and therein put his worthiness on display once again was in the purpose or in the person of John the Baptist. I, the the passage that Johanna read, I want to share with you this is the this is the end of the sermon before I read the devotional. Four things, four observations from this passage. They're simple. Get this grace. These are awesome. Four observations concerning the coming of Jesus from this simple passage. Here's the first one. God set aside John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. He set them aside. So uh, this is going to build. So this is the first step. He set them aside as righteous. And they were both righteous before God, walking blameless in all the commands and statutes of the Lord. God doesn't always do this. In fact, it seems more often than not, the people he chooses to do his work are not described this way, at least not at first. So this is unusual. It's, it, it's in the case of the coming of Jesus, though, this was, this was particularly important in the people closest to him. It's the, the holiness of those who would be involved in his coming is unmistakable, beginning with the parents of the one who would proclaim that he had come. Okay, so the first thing to see from this passage is that God set aside John's parents. Second, God's in particular set John's mom aside as barren and old. <laughs> okay, look at verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. The point of these things was to highlight the power of God. Remember, we're not to Jesus. We're to the one who would tell that he was to come. So the point of these things was to highlight the power of God, the uniqueness of their son, of Zechariah and Elizabeth's son, and ultimately the uniqueness of the one their son would make a straight path for. This is building. This is step two. This is reminiscent of God allowing the man born blind to be born blind that Jesus might heal him and demonstrate his power and glory. Here's the third step. God sent, this is my favorite, God sent an angel to tell John's dad that his son would be set aside for a unique mission. I don't know if you've ever read this passage this way. I want to encourage you to read it this way from now on. Listen, listen to 14. Many will rejoice at his birth. This is John, not Jesus. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in, in, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. All right, do you see what's happening? Do you see what's happening here? In this passage... God is sending a messenger to the parents of a messenger 
to tell them that this messenger is going to have a remarkable life and a remarkable ministry to prepare the way for the one that we really care about. How's that, right? I mean, it's one thing, like, you know, you go over to a friend's friend's house. It's kind of embarrassing if they don't introduce you, right? You're just sort of standing there. But it's kind of neat if they say, hey, here's my friend so-and-so. That's kind of neat. But imagine God setting aside some people to send an angel to those people to tell them they're going to have a child who's going to be set aside in power, in might, in order to set aside the one who really was to come. Now, does that speak at all of the worthiness of Jesus? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so the point, the point is the roots of Advent that we want to tap into go way back. For centuries, God promised that Jesus would come, and then he sent a messenger to tell the parents of a messenger that this is the one. And so this man, John, was born. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So what does this have to do with us? I'm going to end by just reading a, a day one. The point of all of this is that Jesus is utterly unique in human history. He is uniquely worthy. For centuries, this is me, I'm this isn't this yet. For centuries, he was, uh, for centuries, God called his people to prepare for his coming. When the fullness of time came, God gave the person of John the Baptist to announce the arrival of the one he had long promised. And all of that was meant to give his people hope in what was to come and then help them to receive it in faith and obedience when he did. So again, what do we do with all of this? Here's why we think this would be a good thing to use in Advent. Here's here's what John Piper says. Was John the Baptist, or what John the Baptist, along with the centuries of God's promises before him, did for Israel, Advent can do for us. Don't let Christmas find you unprepared. I mean spiritually unprepared. Its joy and impact will be so much greater If you are ready, that's what the pattern of the Old Testament was for for us and the promises in John the Baptist. All right, back to John Piper. So that you might be prepared. First, he gives us four, like three sentences. That's first, meditate on the fact that you need a Savior. How do you prepare well for Advent? He says, first, meditate on the fact that you need a Savior. Christmas is an indictment before it's a delight. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If you don't need a Savior, you don't need Christmas. Christmas will not have its intended effect until we feel desperately the need for a Savior. Let these short Advent meditations help awaken in you the bittersweet sense of the need for a Savior. Second, engage in sober self-examination. John the Baptist teaches us this, this passage in particular. Advent is to Christmas what Lent is to Easter. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. 
and lead me in the way everlasting. Let every heart prepare him room by cleaning house. Third, build God-centered anticipation and expectancy and excitement into your home, especially for the children. If you are excited about Christ, they will be too. If you can make Christmas exciting only with material things, how will the children get a thirst for God? Bend the efforts of your imagination to make the wonder of the king's arrival visible for children. Fourth and last, be much in the scriptures and memorize the great passages. Is not the word like fire declares the Lord? Gather round that fire this Advent season. It is warm. It is sparkling with colors of grace. It is healing for a thousand hurts. It is light for dark nights. Who doesn't want to read more of that, right? Our God is worthy, Grace. May we prepare him room.